Before we start, the following story includes description of war, death, and body horror, which might seem disturbing considering the current world situation. Listener discretion is advised. The world has ended. Things have gone from bad to worse to hopeless. And yet, the human condition demands that when staring into the abyss, you must keep looking into it with a brave face. But as the famous saying goes, the abyss stares back. My name is not important, and today, the visions seem to be dripping from the rain catcher I have found while looking for food. The water pooling into the top shows a gruesome picture. One, I will tell you. Hmm. Whoever lived here had a curious fascination with canned goods. Beans, peas, scalped potatoes, and... Oh! Burgers? I didn't even know canned burgers were a thing. My oh my. Today's prophetic droplets tells the tale of... Vision 1. Jafar. Ingenuity comes in all shapes and sizes. Helpful little band-aids for your paper cuts, cars to take you from place to place, rockets to take humans to foreign planets, or rockets to take them to the afterlife. As much good humans put out into the world, we are eternally doomed to put out an equal amount of evil. Everyone knows the whole cycle of empires. They rise and fall and somebody writes a fancy book about it in 200 years. But what no one could have ever seen coming was our entire civilization falling, collapsing in on itself. The collapse was sudden, violent. Well, that isn't exactly correct. The collapse was obvious to many except for the government who acted like an angry, belligerent drunk, ignored that it indeed had a problem, didn't go to its AA meetings, and blamed everything on the people who said things were bad. The increasing frequency of wars, missing people, and rumors of a magically enhanced weapon to put this nation or that nation on top. All the years of technical knowledge and magical know-how were piling up and up until it was reduced to nothing as politics and arrogance pushed the big red button. Putting aside the poetic language, shit's fucked. The lucky ones got reduced to nothing. The unlucky ones, like yours truly, now have to try to survive in the in-betweens of dead zones and gang territories, all the while trying not to be turned into a necro, the shambling undead messes that wander the corpses of cities. Here I write in this journal I looted off a very stiff brown-haired corpse. My name is Jafar, and it's been five years since the collapse, but more importantly, since I've seen my fiancé Quincy. I remember reading this book about depressed college dropouts having to return home with no money and passion. They all became better friends through the struggle of trying to make a living in a country with a crashing economy. A quote I love from that book, something I keep muttering to myself whenever I need to mutter to myself, was, at the end of everything, hold on to anything. Quincy is my anything. The quote helps when I can't remember his brown eyes, how they looked when he was worried or staring at me whenever we were dancing. 
He was so old-fashioned. He liked to ball dance, twirling me around like a ballerina. I try so hard to hold on to those memories. But like sand passing through my fingers, it never matters how hard I tighten my grip. Some things will always slip through. I've been looking for him since the collapse. It's been hard. The easy solutions are all gone as the cell and spell towers are all down. Our place was looted and wrecked, but he left behind a note that I managed to find. In it, he wrote, I'm going north with family. Find me in Irwin Park. Now, obviously, if he was in Irwin Park, I wouldn't be writing any of this down. Instead, I would be with him laughing about how we used to care about organic foods and GMOs while eating unspeakable things to survive. After last year's lead came to a bust, I was so close to giving up when I woke up with a letter inside my coat pocket. The letter had his handwriting, his favorite tacky cologne smell, his dorky little doodles. It had the aura of the man I love. It was a sign. It was a hook with a very tempting bait. In a world of magic, it's not hard to mimic someone's vague outlines of who they are. And if this bait was hooked by someone who doesn't like me, it would explain how they knew how to tug on my heartstrings in such a way to make me disregard the danger. Not to mention, I don't have a solid answer for how the letter got there. Teleportation magic was not well known except to criminals and the government. As far as I know, Quincy is neither. An instant big sign that there was something insanely fishy about all this. But as disappointing as it is to me and whoever is reading or hearing my story, I took the bait and I let the hook reel me in towards Alputhark, a city Quincy and I could only dream of vacationing at. Before the collapse, Alputhark was the height of luxury. Every stereotype you could think of when luxury comes to mind was true here. The roads were paved with gold the Alchemist Guild had made. The enchanted apartments were pocket dimensions, one and all, able to be as large as mountains and able to conjure up whatever or whoever you wanted. But now, as I could see when I weaved through the countless abandoned designer chemmobiles, Alputhark was nothing more than the stage set for a cautionary tale about greed. Imagine a world where you had enough money to never worry about bills, food, or anything at all. Only to find that there's nothing to buy. After what seemed like a sea of chemmobiles on the highway, I made it into the actual city before nighttime, around a few hours before the sun had set. Besides the skyscrapers and the hundreds of necros infesting the streets, Alputhark didn't offer much in terms of quote-unquote safe areas to, for waiting out the night in. The letter claimed that Quincy was meeting me in the artist sector, in a museum he was always gushing about. Once he said there was a painting, or maybe it was a sculpture, that absolutely described our relationship, which was something that I was both curious and hesitant about. On one hand, it could have been a very lovely display of humanity's best colors put to canvas, a romantic gesture that would have made my heart explode 
from a lactose intolerant reaction from the cheesiness of it. Or it could have been a very angry looking sculpture named something like the fault of mortals that would result in a mini argument between us about who was who in the display. Was Jealous Jafar the one doing the stomping on Quincy's freckled face? Or was it quivering Quincy the coward strangling me with a rope? Don't get me wrong, I love the man, and after three years of sticking with my annoying ass, I would hope he loved me too. But it would be a lie to say we were a perfect couple, with all our fights and stupid arguments about tiny little things that don't even matter. It would be more accurate to say we were a, uh, a functioning couple. Since it was still daytime, the necros were nice and lazy, too slow to care about me. I spent my time gathering foodstuffs for the night and trying to decide on what building in the artist sector I should camp in. The terrace map I had gushed more on the history of the place and not how reliably built the walls were. Not even a mention in the footnotes if it was warded against dark magic that Necros run off of. Zero stars. When society is eventually rebuilt and the glorious internet comes back, I'm giving this place a strongly worded bad review on Whale. After deciding against the probably overpopulated hotels and other tall but secure looking buildings, and the other art exhibits that housed who knows what, I decided on a tiny keymaker's hut in the center of a not-too-populated plaza. Ironically, it wasn't even locked. It was small, cramped, and the coppery metallic smell of all the unused, rusting keys hanging on the racks had made me lose my appetite for the canned clam chowder I had found earlier. So, I locked the door, made sure the window shutters were down and locked, and waited for either my eyelids to fall or for the sun to rise again. Either or. And so, like I did every ten minutes, when I was bored or sad or... or lonely, I pulled out the letter. The letter. The letter. The letter. I didn't want to call this notebook piece of scrap paper with dorky doodles Quincy's letter, because then that would give me this possibly false belief that Quincy was 100% alive and waiting for me. And in the depressing case he wasn't, I wanted to be prepared. Even if realistically, nothing could prepare me for that. I read the words over and over until what was memorized had now turned into memories of the past. Our first date the time he forgot our two-year anniversary, and how he repainted the entirety of the bedroom light mint green to make up for it. And when I asked him why in the world he would do that, he said, because you said anything with mint is quote-unquote fucking great. <laughs> the cute jackass didn't know I was talking about food, like mint chocolate chip ice cream or breath mints or anything like that. I can still remember that night, how our hands did much more than hand-holding, and how poetry I won't ever remember was uttered between our lips. I think often of that night, of how things were before, before everything got so 
messed up. Sleeping on the floor of the key hut wasn't so bad. It had a rug floor and a simple wooden chair that I pushed against the door handle to make sure nothing could break in. I learned that from a random horror movie once. It was one of the only things I paid attention to during Quincy's forced horror movie marathons. He was convinced that my fear of the gory would only go away if I dived into it head first. Turns out the only thing that made me fear it any less was the world ending. At first, whenever I saw a necro, it was, Dear God, no, get it the fuck away from me! To, oh no, a zombie, a walker, a crawler, a leaper, a strider. I'm sure I can make up like 20 new names before the rotting meat sack gets to me. Like, it's still horrifying, but now it's more like an annoyance. And when I woke up, I was reminiscing on how telling people to move out of the way sometimes had results. Now they just stare you in the face like, like, I get you're dead now, Clarence or Melissa or whatever the hell your name is, but that is an excuse to be a rude, body-blocking asshole. I'm trying to get to an art museum. The Necros were still clumped together from their nighttime horde mentality. They have them all positioned into islands, sort of, around the plaza, near the art museum and the tourist traps. And when I was surveying the area, trying to look for the art museum, I noticed something strange, something that should have made me worried when I first got here. There was a lack of chemmobiles that should be around here. Whether parked and forgotten or on the road during the escape attempts, but there weren't. All of the chemmobiles I saw were on the highway, but there was none in the city. As if people had moved all of them away. Every city I've ever been in never had one area totally devoid of either spellcraft planes or chemmobile vehicles. A bad omen, I thought. In a city full of rich assholes, there is no doubt in my mind that their love for art would not get in their way of, es of escaping an undead nightmare. The more I looked around, the more wrong everything seemed. Even in the nicest suburbs to the most dirty slums, there was some amount of wanton destruction and maybe tiny sprinkles of cult-like crucifixes like people wanted to mimic that famous apocalyptic movie about the Australian desert and their hunger for gas. Or as some would call it, petrol. But now that I wasn't daydreaming about Quincy and I or the past, I noticed how clean everything was. I mean, besides the necro's filth and gore falling everywhere, Every form of art and civil humanity was still intact. No litter in the streets. Tourist shopwares look as if they were just abandoned and not looted. And there was no trash in the trash bins or the dumpsters. All of this was reeking of two things. One, Alputhark is not a city of rich assholes like I thought. And somehow, before getting eaten or running away from their homes... All the rich people cleaned everything up. Not very likely. Two, the mage, or whoever the evil necromancer is, 
puppeteering all these necros, all these dead people, treated like all of Alputhark was their living room, keeping everything nice and neat for guests or for idiots like me looking for their fiancés. Part of me was screaming to run. That all of this was the perfect setup for a cliche horror movie where my stupid love for a stupid handsome white boy would get me killed. The other part was saying, just don't die. Look for Quincy fast, make sure you don't get trapped somehow or otherwise. And if Quincy is not here, that's it. He's not here. Like I said, friend in my journal or person who killed me and is reading it or whoever, I took the bait. That means I took it all the way. Even though it felt like I was contemplating all of this for an hour or two, it was really only a few minutes. The sun was still steadily climbing into the noon position, and the necros were still slow and non-threatening. I walked past them and found the art museum that the note detailed. Just like everything else, this place was clean. Frozen in time, betraying the truth of the world. The truth that the world ended. The museum would have been creepy with its sterile smell and its cold, windy feeling and its dark hallways if it weren't for my immense and maybe unreasonable hatred for modern art. Every canvas I saw in the museum was nothing but splotches of the same red paint, some had like this cream color mixed in, but all of it was the same. Walking the carpeted hallways looking for anything or anyone, I kept thinking about what Quincy said about this place, that there was a painting or sculpture that described us perfectly. If he's alive, I'm gonna fucking kill him for comparing something so beautiful like our relationship to meaningless strokes of red paint. I crouched down and tried to hide myself. I just heard something, like a bottle breaking or some loud noise. What was that? It came from up ahead, where the light bleeding through from the sun could not illuminate. A dark hallway containing sculptures. I waited and watched as I saw someone. No, not someone. My one. I could recognize his curly hair and his mediocre goatee that he refused to shave. The jacket I bought him when we got obsessed with that drama about high school murderers trying to grow up. It was him, but I still hid, not knowing if it was truly him. He spoke. Jafar, you know I can see you, right? Geez, five years of surviving and you still have that gut. The condescending tone, the snarkiness, it sure sounded like him. I quizzed him on important details only we would know. What did you say to me after our first date? I asked him. He chuckled, smiled that shit-eating smile and said, I never want to see you again. I got up but didn't move towards him. The flash of teeth in the darkness. Yet I couldn't see 
his face. But somehow, I could see that flash, his teeth shining, reflecting whatever little sunlight managed to get into the room. What did you say to me after our first time? His smile, hiding those white teeth, turned into a scowl. The only thing on his face moving, I realized, was his bottom half, his smile. His eyes, I realized, his lovely muddy brown eyes, looked tired and they didn't move when he spoke. Want to watch shitty comedy romances? Yeah, that's what I said after our first time. I took a few steps forward, trying to gaze into his eyes, trying so hard not to let my cynicism get the best of me, to see if it was really him. Final one. When did I propose to you? He let out an annoyed groan and said, Come on, Hefe, what's with all these questions? I took a step backwards. He would always oblige my dumb would-you-rathers or hypotheticals. You know, the ones where you ask your significant other, Would you still love me if I was a cactus you had to water every day? He would always answer. He would never be upset. Why was he upset now? Just answer it, I demanded. He sighed and said, Five years ago, before all this, in June, you did it after my birthday when you took us to the movies. We watched The Demolition, the action movie I wanted to see so I could make fun of it more accurately. Satisfied? He had the memories right, but the way he acted, it wasn't Quincy. It wasn't the man I wanted to marry. I turned around without saying anything else and started to run down the hallways, back the way I came, and I picked up the speed after I heard the fake Quincy start screaming. Then screaming transformed into roaring. My feet thinking faster than my panicked mind, I didn't notice the weird liquidy sounds, like jelly falling onto the floor, and the sound of the walls magically shifting. I hit a dead end suddenly, as a wall filled with pretentious paintings hit me square in the nose and made me fall backwards. As pain transformed into anger, I pulled myself up, only to be greeted by blood-red necros forming out of the paintings on the wall and falling onto the floor, surrounding me. The fake Quincy turned the corner, his smile no. Its smile was shining in the dark again, and now I knew why. It pulled off Quincy's face, a leathery mask that made me sick. His curly hair, his freckles, his everything fell onto the floor as the real monster, like a Scooby-Doo cartoon finally stared at me in the face. It was bald, and it, and it smiled at me, confirming that Quincy had been dead for a long time. A famous necromancer, 
one of the 13 that ended the world, a former government leader, angler fish, the one who smiles. I tried to get a mana stone out of my backpack to cast a self-defense spell, but it held out its hand and sucked the mana out of the stone, out of the room, out of me. The feeling of life ebbing away from me made me very tired, and for a few seconds of pure darkness, I was asleep. Then, when I woke up, I felt aches in my elbows and knees. I had been pinned to a stone body, forced into position by rods impaling me. I could feel the metal being pushed against my skin, my flesh, when I tried to get free. The anglerfish laughed and said something in Quincy's voice. Hey, lover boy. <laughs> Come on, Hefe. Look at what you're next to. It's the sculpture I told you about that describes us. Before I could scream at him to shut up, I looked at the stone body I was trapped with. And finally, after all these years, I, I was reunited with Quincy. The real Quincy. Without his face, I could barely recognize him. He was petrified, turned into stone. Anger, grief, shock, sadness. I wish I could tell you I felt these, but all I felt while I was staring into his eyes, his dead eyes, was my body turning into stone. The last words I would ever hear before being trapped in this purgatory between life and death was the anglerfish laughing and reading the sculpture's title. <laughs> Respite and requite, two lovers resting. Mm. Mm. Oh, you know, these canned burgers aren't so bad. And it seems the vision has slowed down to a still image of the two ill-begotten lovers. Rather short story. But if we go looking elsewhere, I'm sure a vast lake of tales will come soon enough. Thank you, fellow traveler, for listening to me. And I hope we continue adventuring together. We'll get up to some proper mischief yet. <laughs> Hi, if you're listening to this, that means you made it to the end. Sincerely, thank you. This episode was written by me, Jacob Harold. I would like to thank dear supportive friends who made the whole idea of this podcast possible. Thank you to Cherish, Nikayla, Richard, Martha, Michelle, and whoever else I'm probably forgetting. I'm sorry for the mic quality. Hopefully, uh, I can upgrade in the coming months. If you like this episode of Prophetic Droplets, please subscribe and rate us. Any type of rating, comment, and constructive criticism you can care to leave will be insanely helpful. Criticism of all kinds is welcome and appreciated. If you would like to follow our social media, you can find us on Prophetic Droplets Pod 
on Instagram. And remember, don't stare too deeply into the fountain of youth. Regret is a leading cause of nostalgia.